You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Corporate Quitter. I'm your host, Gabby Ionello, and today's guest I'm so excited about. She inspired me so much after our initial conversation. Her name is Dr. Laura Sicola. She's a leadership communication and influence coach, trainer, and speaker who helps executives become inspiring leaders. She's the founder of Vocal Impact Productions, author of the book, Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice, and host of the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. And her TEDx talk, which is amazing, want to sound like a leader, start by saying your name right, which has over six and a half million views. So Laura, thank you so much for being on. It's honestly an honor because since speaking to you, I feel like I've changed or been more cognizant of the way that I communicate and it's made such a difference in my business. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me here today. And I'll be asking you a couple of questions later on to get a sense of what uh, what it was that hit, what shifted. What I'm expecting is that it's little things, right? It's not like, oh, I just went and got a PhD in public speaking. That's not what it's about. It's tiny little details that we never noticed before. And once you have those aha moments of clarity, a little tweak, a little tweak and huge differences in the end. Yeah, exactly. And the great thing too, is that because they are small little tweaks, it's all accessible to everyone. You don't have to do these crazy things and go on these retreats or whatever it is. Not that those are bad things, but yeah. What's your story? How did you fall into business and like basically being this vocal executive guru, if you will? (laughs) That's very kind of you. I am what I like to call both an accidental entrepreneur and a recovering academic. I was not supposed to be in business. I do not have any particular business background. I was a public school teacher for five years, and then I went to graduate school. Uh, I came to Philadelphia to go to the University of Pennsylvania for my PhD, and the intent was to go tenure track and be a professor, You know, teach my classes, do my research, write my books, et cetera, and make my difference by training the future teachers of America and beyond. That was my initial intention. And I think there's two kinds of professors and anybody out there who's gone to college, you can tell me if you agree with this assessment or not. But I think there are professors who are researchers at heart who also teach classes. And there are those who are teachers at heart who also conduct research. And tenure track wants this one and I am this one. And that's a really important distinction to make to realize when something that you're doing is not a good fit. Um, I am a teacher at heart. I love helping people have those aha moments. I love watching my students or clients or whoever else it is, podcast guests and hosts and everybody have those little light bulb moments where things suddenly click and you go, oh, I can do that. That made a difference. That's so much more important to me as a motivating factor and purpose for what I do. And the tenure track was much more about doing research. And if you have time, you know, you go to the class and you work with the students. So I am basically, oh yeah, let's call it a tenure track dropout. And it was one of those situations where I just realized that I wasn't happy with what that life was going to look like as I started heading into it. And the pivot for me was two serendipitous conversations that happened right as I was finally graduating and and heading into that world. I was sitting next to someone at a wedding reception and we were just chatting. He asked about my research. He asked about X, Y, and Z. And it said, you know, I've always had an instinct about that, but uh, I never really had the data to back it up. You have the data. Would you be interested in coming and doing a training for my people to help them understand? Because it was all about speech and language learning as adults and intercultural communications and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I said, sure, you know, I 
can do that. Well, lo and behold, he's the vice president of government programs at IBM. And like that over a glass of wine and you know an hour or so of conversation at dinner. And suddenly I had a contract with the Fortune 100 company. Wow. Isn't that so funny how that happens? And you're just like, oh my God. Yep. And that wasn't enough to retire on, but nevertheless, it was certainly a springboard going, well, that was kind of nice. You know, it wasn't so hard and it's creative and it's exciting and it's autonomous and it's challenging and it's something totally different. You know, mind you, we had a few other conversations and negotiated the parameters of the deal and all. And I remember hanging up the phone after our follow-up conversations when we had officially decided, yes, here's what I'm going to deliver. Here's what it's going to look like. I remember hanging up the phone and going, holy shit, what did I just agree to? What did I just do? Like, this is I can't sit there in front of a room full of 75 global executives from IBM and tell them about, no, yes, I can. And that was the beginning. And I had another similarly serendipitous exchange with someone from Human Resources at Chase, a bank. Why? Because they dialed the wrong number. Wow. That's so funny. Crazy, isn't it? You know, they dialed and they got the wrong extension. I was teaching part-time at the university at that point. And they were looking for X. And I said, oh, that's not actually my office. That's this other department. I used to work there. So here's the information. Here's the contact. Here's how you ask the question so that people understand what it is that you're really looking for now that you've explained it to me. And chances are, here's the answer that you're looking for. So hopefully I've been helpful and I hope you find what you do want. That being said, if you're looking for this customized program that you're describing that you'd like someone to create for you, an 800-pound gorilla like the University of Pennsylvania doesn't pivot on a dime exactly, you know, without 400 lawyers and 82 accountants and about 18 months worth of deliberation, et cetera. If you're just looking for somebody to put together this kind of program for you and you want the Penn brand, look, I graduated from here. They're employing me. I'm teaching right now. So clearly they can't think I'm too stupid and they think they did a reasonably decent job training me. And I pivot a lot easier on my dime than the Titanic will. So if you don't get the answer you want from the official department, call me back. And three months later, I had a contract with Chase. Of course, the revelation later on was that Fortune 100 companies don't just keep falling out of the sky like that. In case anybody out there is not sure, that rainfall stopped quickly because that in particular was the fall of 2008. And the, the contract was great. It was lucrative. It was exciting and fun. And then the rain stopped. And I went, okay, uh, rain? Yep, keep coming. And it didn't. So then I learned a really, really important lesson about things like marketing, which I knew nothing about. And the uphill battle began from there because I was hooked. I was still teaching part-time, which definitely helped to at least keep the bills paid, keep the roof over my head. But I was hooked on the notion of entrepreneurship, training, consulting work, just all the excitement of it. There's a lot of things that I think can help people decide whether or not they should pull that trigger and to what extent, or when, how, et cetera. We can talk about any of those if you'd like. But I realized that that was far more to my taste than a more generic tenure track position. Not to disparage anybody who takes that, if that's where your heart is called and your skills are great, but that was not for me. So um, once I was in there, I was hooked. What was like the pull the trigger moment then for you? Like even for people listening, like what would you suggest? Because right, anyone can say, oh, well, quit your job. But like, yeah, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Sure. So I think first you have to weigh two really important things and figure out where you stand, right? One is your need for stability. The other is your need for inspiration. Because for me at that point, I was in my mid-30s when I finished my PhD and was moving on in that direction. And I was single. I didn't have any major debt. I wasn't married. I didn't have children. I didn't have parents I was trying to take care of. I could afford to eat peanut butter and ramen 
for, you know, six out of seven days a week until I could make ends meet as long as basics were paid for. I didn't have a very high cost of living at that point. So that was different. If I had children, if I had a lot of bills to pay, if I had, you know, a mortgage and whatever else, I may have been less quick to pull that trigger. That being said, I also taught part-time every semester for about five years as I was starting to build the business because the consistent part-time work was enough to take care of my basic needs, my mortgage, my electrical bill, my phone, my you know food, whatever it was. So I never worried about what happens if I don't do X this month because if I had that need for stability in knowing that my kids weren't going to be eating only peanut butter and ramen or all that kind of stuff, that's different. And I knew from the work that I was doing that some months were going to be great and some months were going to be literally no income. So you have to budget, you have to be willing to live with a lot of risk involved, and you have to be able to sleep at night with that risk. So if you or perhaps your significant other, if you live together, if you have you know shared responsibilities, if they're not comfortable with you having the ebbs and flows where you don't know when the next flow is going to come, if that's going to put too much strain on your relationship, you know, these are all elements to consider. Do you need health care? Do you need health insurance? Can you afford it on your own? Do you need it from the company? You know, there's a lot of things to consider about when is the right time to completely pull the trigger. I want to make it clear. I was part-time teaching five years until my business had finally ramped up to the point where I was having to turn down too many opportunities because they needed me on a day when I was supposed to be in class teaching or on a day that would require traveling on the day I was supposed to teach. So when it got to the point where the base subsistence money from my part-time work was prohibiting me from going and earning more than that would have. That was the sign that, okay, it's it's official. I, I need to cut the cord now and fully launch 100% independent. It was scary to not renew my contract, but it was time. And again, I didn't have all those other pressures. So you have to weigh those kinds of things. Some people feel like they can't sleep at night unless they know that five o'clock every Friday, this amount of money week after week is going to magically appear in their uh, bank account. And there's no shame in that. You have to know what your tolerance is and what your priorities are. And that should help. Yeah. There's definitely a period of like struggle when you are switching gears a bit between like, you know, the deposit every Friday to then like doing things on your own. But it's really exciting also, like in a way, in a weird, thrilling way. I feel like my sense of pride has changed since now any money that comes in is directly a result of my efforts than opposed to just showing up at a job and getting a salary. Yes. You earn every dollar. You know, you kill what you eat and yeah. that's or you eat what you kill <laughs> as the case is. So it's motivating because, you know, if you don't, then that's that. There are no handouts. There's no guarantee. There's no, ah, you know, I'm not really feeling up to it this week. doesn't really matter. I'll still get paid you can't be complacent and eat as an entrepreneur. It's one or the other. Agreed. So for the people who are listening, who they either are in their corporate jobs and they want to leave, or they're maybe just starting out in business, can you kind of speak to how someone can speak to influence? Because as I know from speaking to you and seeing all your, your TED Talk and all these different things that you've done, you know, there's a difference between commanding and demanding, especially in business. There takes some time where, A, you need to build up relationships or get to a yes in certain contractual agreements or signing a client on, but like it makes a difference how you speak, whether that deal is going to work or the business is going to work or it's not. Yes. And under the umbrella of executive presence, I like to focus on what I call vocal executive presence. And that's 
having this opportunity, number one, to use some of the words that you use to command the room, to connect with the audience, and to close the deal. And in doing so, the way that you speak is going to help you get to all three of those stages of connection and success. In speaking, alignment is really the key to credibility, and credibility is at the core of having that leadership image and of getting to those yeses that you talked about. Because most of us don't realize when we speak that we're communicating through three channels all at the same time. And this is the core of what my TED Talk is about, except a little more detail over there and a few more jokes probably along the way. But when you're communicating, you're communicating through three channels all at the same time. And those channels, if you imagine a triangle, are your verbal, vocal, and visual channels. So the verbal is what you say. It's your transcript if you will, what comes out of your mouth. If somebody were to type it out as you're speaking and you read it out, okay, that's your verbal channel. The vocal channel is what it sounds like as those words are coming out of your mouth because there's a big difference. Even just the word fine, there's a big difference in how people interpret that, right? Fine, fine. About 42 other different possible ways to interpret it, right? So the sound does matter. The word itself alone is not usually does not stand for itself. And the visual is the physical communication, how you're groomed or dressed and your body language, your hand gestures, et cetera. And when all three of those channels are communicating the same message at the same time, it's authentic and it's credible. And most people don't realize more often than not that there is a disconnect in one or more. And it could be anything from, you've had those arguments where somebody says, well, why are you mad? What did I say? And the other person goes, it's not what you said, it's how you said it, right? Well, that tells you that there's a disconnect between the words, the verbal, and the voice and the body language. So again, if someone says they, you know, I want you to do this, and you go, fine. And they go, what's the attitude? And you go, well, I said, fine. I mean, what more do you want? It's like, what's well, not the fact that you said the word fine, it's the eye roll and this, the whatever else. That's what I'm listening to there. That's where I'm interpreting the real meaning of the word fine. I don't believe that you think it's fine. I don't believe that, you know, you're being respectful of my wishes. I don't believe those kinds of things. You're getting in your own way because you think I'm being unreasonable. You don't understand why I'm picking a fight where you don't even realize that you just completely baited me by giving me a word that you clearly didn't mean according to your other channels. You're out of alignment and you don't know it. And it can be lots of other situations too. Like if you are particularly nervous, a habit that a lot of people use when they're insecure about something, their body through their voice, the way your body makes sound when you speak will betray and telegraph that nervousness by making you use what's called upspeak, which sounds like you're asking a lot of questions because your voice goes up at the ends of all your phrases and sentences. And it's like implying a bunch of tag questions. Like, is that okay? Do you know what I mean? Right? Which is all your way of non-verbally requesting affirmation. Do, do you agree with me? Because I'm not 100% confident in, in myself, Right. Yeah. When you usually say your name, I actually learned this in college, which was like remarkable. It changed the way that I spoke. Right. But using your voice on an up tonality, as you were asked a question, when you were saying your name completely changed the way that someone could perceive who you are based on either doing it that way or another way, like completely. Yes. That's exactly why, frankly, my talk is called want to sound like a leader. Start by saying your name, right? Yeah. It's just, it's so simple. It's so simple. But like, if I say Gabby, or if I say Gabby, 
there's a difference between the two because when you're doing uptick, it's like questioning who you are. Whereas the other one is like, I am commanding who I am. This is my presence. This is my name. This is like, you're just putting ownership in one versus the other one, which is not so strong or confident. So wild. Yes. Small details make big differences. That's exactly what it is. So what are some of the myths behind speaking? Like, I know you talked in like, right, there's words, there's voice, there's body language. What are some myths around that? And then also like, maybe get into some myths around maybe what can make someone successful, right? Does that mean you have to be the most perfect public speaker and you need to know all the tips and tricks and like, that's how you do it well in business or like kind of anything along those lines? Okay. So the first myth that I think is the most important, we talked about those three channels, right? The verbal, the vocal, and the visual. The by far biggest myth of all is, and you'll hear lots of people espousing it because they think they're quoting statistics and they're not, they're misquoting misinterpretations of stats that are out there is that you may hear people say things like, well, you know, 55% of all communication is nonverbal. It's all about your body language and things. And no, and I've even heard people say, well, you know, 93% of all communication is nonverbal. That's a huge myth. The whole notion of it's not what you say, but how you say it, myth. The fact is that it's the integration, the alignment of the congruence between what you say and how you say it that matters. Because first, if you have good content, which is your verbal, and bad delivery, your vocal and your visual, then that's like taking a pearl and coating it in mud. There's good stuff in there. You just can't find it through the mess. On the flip side, if you have bad content, messy or factually inaccurate or whatever, but you deliver it really well, then it's like lipstick on a pig. What purpose does it serve other than to kind of dress it up somehow in in an otherwise pointless fashion? But the statistic that most people are referencing is a seminal study from back in the 60s, frankly, Albert Morabian's work that said in a much narrower context that when you're out of alignment, this is talking about people who are ineffective speakers, not effective, who are ineffective speakers, when what they say and how they say it don't match. That's where the audience goes, wait, what? Like there's doubt that gets triggered in the brain of the listener. And when what you say and how you say it don't match, the audience defaults to interpreting and assigning credibility to the how you say it. They're willing to dismiss what you said if it doesn't seem to match, if it doesn't seem like you really believe what you're saying. We go back to that fine example the words clearly don't match the delivery. So at that point, I'm going to ignore the words. I'm going to ignore the word fine. And I'm going to focus on the eye roll and the tone. And that's where I'm going to dismiss the meaning. Hence, much more of the value of the communication, the inherent meaning was in the nonverbal part. But again, that's when someone's a bad communicator or when someone is out of alignment. When you're in alignment, when your words and your voice and your body language all match, that's when people just listen to what you say and they buy into it because it seems like you do too. They have no reason to question or doubt what you're saying. That's the core. When you're a good speaker, that 55, 38, 7% Numbers don't matter. The argument that 55% of your attention is focused on your body language, that 38% of the attention of the listener is focused on the voice, and that only 7% is focused on the words, again, went out of alignment. That's not something to aspire to. That's something to fix. So I think that's probably the biggest myth 
that is out there overall that people love to espouse because the stat makes them sound smart, <laughs> except that it's the exact opposite. Yeah. No, I love that you said that too. Cause like, I feel like growing up, well, my mom always told me it's not what you say, how you say it, which made me want to like cringe. And I was so mad about it, but I mean, it did, I could see in my life how that was basically changing the way that I was communicating anything to my students when I was a teacher, to my colleagues when I was in, you know, working in corporate to now my relationship, my, like my boyfriend, like, but it also goes to show kind of what you said too, about like the actual words you choose and like the deliverance and like the way that you look in your body language, like they all do play a really important factor in everything. And since our conversation, I am so cognizant of the fact that like you've said all those things. Cause even for me, I didn't recognize it until you put it into words. Right. Because to some people write this statistic, this thing, right. Oh, I got to do it this way. Oh, I have to have my hair pressed a certain way to have this certain look when realistically, like people just want to hear you being you. Because now there's this whole influx of people who are like, well, just be authentic, which is great. I love the authenticity. That's what I do too. But like, how does that translate into business then? Like, how does that help someone connect with their audience or even still be like, think of someone like, I don't know if you know, Gary V, like he curses a lot, but like everyone respects him and he's a great speaker yet. He like dresses how he wants. Like, can you kind of hone in more on that, how people connect with their audience and still embrace authenticity while still hitting the three points in the triangle? Sure. I think number one, the biggest mistake people make is assuming that authenticity is binary. You're authentic or you're not. That you are in this box and that anything outside of this box is not you. Let's use an analogy toward your wardrobe. So if you think about all the clothes that you have in your closet, in your dresser, et cetera, you probably have a range, right? You have little black cocktail dress, you've got the gym clothes, you've got your warm sweaters and your cute jeans and your funky boots and your sneakers and all sorts of stuff, right? So you can dress it up, you can dress it down, you can, you got your PJs, you've got everything else. It's not all jeans and t-shirts. It's not all suits or all pajamas. You have all those different options. Each one still reflects you because there's a million kinds of dresses. There's a million kinds of shorts and t-shirts. There's a million kinds of sneakers. You pick the one that suits you, but you still have that wide range. And when you speak, you still have to be able to encompass both, to have that range of styles, but have it be appropriate for the context. You need to pick because you're not going to go to the gym wearing the evening gown. I would assume, right? <laughs> not. Oh my God, that'd be really painful. <laughs> right. And you're not going to go to that black tie holiday event wearing your gym clothes. So it's not to say, well, look, I own this evening gown and I'm going to go to the gym wearing it because that's who I am. Like, okay. I mean, I don't know that it'll serve you the way you want it to, but if you're really insistent upon, so that's where the notion of authenticity gets a bad rap because when people say, well, I want to change my job. I want to go into this other world. I'm going to connect with these totally different people, but this is me and that's not me. So I'm not going to change to connect, meaning I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to learn what this particular audience needs or wants or how I can get them to hear me more effectively. When we resist growth, by misinterpreting the need for growth and the opportunity for growth is saying, I'm not good enough who I am. Is that what you're saying? I have to be somebody else? No, that's not what I'm saying, but you do have to change. I mean, look, like I said, I'm a recovering academic. I was in academia for 10 years, at least in the at the university level. I spent seven years as a graduate student. They beat into my head how to write, how to talk, how many syllables had to be part of at least 80% of the words that came out of my mouth 
all that kind of stuff. It worked in that context. When I started consulting and doing training programs for corporate America, for nonprofits, for whatever else, that didn't fly. People would glaze over. It seemed like I was trying too hard to prove that I was smart. It seemed like I was talking over their heads or trying to prove that I was better than they were. They were misinterpreting that because that speech style that I had gotten so used to that had become a part of my identity was not valued in the new context. It was not understood in the new context. So I had to learn to change my approach. Not to say I had to dumb it down, but I had to find less verbose, less sesquipedalian vocabulary so as to be intelligible, meaning use smaller words, frankly, to be intelligible to the average human being. Again, it's not dumbing down. It's just recognizing my audience doesn't appreciate that particular aspect. To let go of it is not to say I have to be someone I'm not or that I'm being inauthentic. The idea is adding, just like in your wardrobe. I bet if you went shopping this weekend and you saw a pair of shoes you loved, you would find a way to justify buying them and add them to your wardrobe and your other shoes would not feel jealous. There's always room for more shoe love. So similarly, if you say, I want to be able to connect with that audience, I want that client base, I want that podcast audience, I want whoever it is to recognize value in me, I may need to buy a new pair of shoes. I may need to tell a different kind of story. I may need to use smaller words or less jargon or whatever it happens to be to get through to them. It's not being inauthentic. It's learning a different approach so that they can hear, so that they're able to hear what I need them to hear, so that I get the response that I want. And I think getting out of that, when you start to look at authenticity as finding that balance, expanding your sense of identity to have greater influence with a wider sphere of people, that's when you empower yourself. You have to get out of the mindset of being authenticity is, this is me, that's not me. And if I have to get out of my box for them to hear me, then they want me to be inauthentic. And that's, I'm not willing to do that. That's a self-limiting belief by a misdefined term. I'm glad you touched on that because right when I was in corporate, it was like the pencil skirts and everything was like to the T and I had to like do the as per my last email jargon and right do all these nice little prim proper things. And then once I left, it was like this, almost like an identity crisis of like, who am I? Who am I actually trying to be? How do I communicate? Like, how do I dress? It's been really remarkable to see that I could be both things or multiple things versus just one or the other, right? Not black or white. So I'm glad that you touched on that too, because I think the rat race for a lot of entrepreneurs right now, that hustle right now is to find your right, your best angle and then you run with it and then be authentic. You know, you hear all these leaders who are saying, oh, be authentic and like do the mindset stuff and like all this stuff, but it's it's not the full picture, but it's part of it and it's important. But I'm glad you you know, alignment with what you talked about, about speaking publicly and like being really, really confident in the way that you speak and all these different things that authenticity falls in with that as well. But can you, maybe it would be helpful for people who are listening out that you've touched on all this like foundational pieces. How can people be better at selling or close more deals as they become a better speaker and practice all these different like techniques and be aware of just like how they basically present themselves? Sure. So in the three... C's of vocal executive presence that I mentioned before, that third C, the close the deal, right? The first two are command the room and then connect with the audience. Closing the deal has two different meanings, and it's important to recognize both of them. The first is the more surface level of, okay, getting a customer to say yes, signing on the dotted line, exchange of money, all the things that we as entrepreneurs are looking for. In the broader sense, closing the deal just means getting to yes. It means moving the needle. It means making one decision that allows progress 
to continue. And maybe that yes is just deciding when you're going to have the next conversation to continue the discussion. You ran out of time today. What's next? Should we continue it or not? Yes? Good. When? Tuesday, three o'clock. I'll send a Zoom. Okay, done. That deal is closed and it just inched forward. All progress is good progress. So recognizing that small wins in communication are often just as valuable, if not more so, than those big final wins because it's a process to get there. So um, by being clear in your purpose, what is the yes you want to get to? Maybe it's a big yes. You know, you'd love to get to the end of the conversation and have them say, you know what? I think I am ready to sign on. Here's my credit card. Great. If that's not the yes that they're ready to get to, what would be another yes? What's another win? What's another deal to close at that moment? Could you make an introduction for them? Is it a follow-up in a month when they're done with third quarter estimates and you know closings and all that kind of stuff? Is there, what would be the next? The more prepared you can be for those important conversations to think to yourself and decide in advance, what would be a good final outcome for this conversation? What is the concrete destination you want to arrive at? What kind of deals would you consider to have successfully closed? What would be satisfying to you? Have those options out there because then you can lead the conversation in any of those directions. But if you're just like, well, let's get on the phone call and you know see what happens, then I guarantee nothing will happen as a result of it. Yeah. I think sometimes it's hard to be really specific with people though. Like I've even had jobs that I work to, like for example, if a client didn't pay an invoice and I have to then go and say, okay, when are you going to pay this invoice buyer? Like, can we know by X date and being really specific and asking that versus saying like, basically leaving it open-ended can make all the difference. But that doesn't mean that I feel confident enough to then make, you know, basically do it in a way that's very specific and with like a outcome in mind or whatever it is. Preparation helps with everything else because if you can force yourself to articulate it to the point where you can literally write it down on a piece of paper and say three acceptable outcomes for this is that A, they agree to pay right now. B, they tell me when they're going to pay. Or C, they tell me by when they will know and they give me a date by which either they will follow up with me or when I can follow up with them, at which point they should have the answer then okay, any of those, I will consider a win. That's moving the needle forward. But if you're just going to get on and say, gee, you know, the customer hasn't paid the bill yet, I should call them. Okay, where do you expect that conversation to go? Then you're really kind of winging it because you don't know what outcome you want. You're vaguely hoping that they're going to pay it right then and there, but the conversation is going to be awkward. It's going to feel uncomfortable because no one likes to make those kinds of collections calls. That's certainly not fun. So you're probably going to use a lot of fillers and your voice might, you know, kind of fry out a little because you're not 100% sure that you're saying the right thing because you don't know what the right thing really is because you haven't made sense of everything. And you might also be inflecting a lot of those questions through that uncertainty with Upspeak because you're hoping that they don't get mad that you're calling about this because they don't want to take this call either, right? So all of these things are ways that you're going to undermine your own success because you sort of vaguely know what you would like to happen, but you have not identified for yourself one, much less three, deliberate outcomes that you are going to drive the conversations towards. I don't mean drive like bullwhip, but drive as in direct and be able to ask outright for Because if they just get on and they say, well, I, yeah, you know, I, I definitely, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'm not totally sure um, what, what happened there. But what are you just going to do? Say, uh, okay, and hang up? No, they just 
got you to go away. That's what happened from that conversation. There's no mutual expectations. There's no mutual understanding of what a next step would be. You're no better off than you were other than like you reminded them that you knew that they hadn't paid. They went, yeah, yeah, I'm still not going to, but you're not going to actually make me. So why should I? Be clear in what a deliverable, what an actual specific outcome would be from that conversation. And you have to write it down for yourself. From this call, I need to know when they're going to pay or when I can follow up with them to find out when they're going to pay if they don't know yet. I need a concrete date by which, and perhaps a mode by credit card, by direct deposit, by check. What am I looking for? Where will I see it come in? Even a clear answer is good enough, or might be, you have to decide that for your own conversations. Yeah. I love all these. And I also like that you kind of, I know people who are listening can't see the body language and all the movements you did, but like you just going through probably maybe like four different ways that you would waffle through some sort of experience that's uncomfortable. It's like when you were doing it, I was like, oh my God, I've done this so many times in so many different instances. It's like, oh my God, she's done it again where I feel like I need to do work. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. And it's really funny how that alone will completely undermine not only that call, but just business in general. Like sure, it's your relationship, your reputation. Because if they can hear that you don't really want to make the call and they're not totally sure if you're, if you're going to be mad at them or something like that, then what they know is that, oh, I have power. She's intimidated by me. I don't have to say yes because she won't actually hold my feet to the fire. I think I'll mess around with this a little bit longer and keep deferring because I have other things I'd rather do with that money for now. I'll, eventually I'll pay her probably, but at my time, not hers because I know she won't do anything about it. You put the power in somebody else's hands. You give away your power when you're unclear of the outcome that you want and when you're voicing it in a way that telegraphs your insecurity. So you just completely rip the rug out from under your own feet. So can you maybe like, what comes to mind for me is, right, especially in the beginning for people maybe who are listening or even for myself, in the beginning, you're not so sure of yourself. You're trying to determine like, okay, I'm an expert, but an expert in what? Or like, am I even really this qualified? You go through all these like worries and like these different layers of like doubting yourself basically. So how can you still communicate effectively while being unsure about yourself, like in the process, you know, and still honing in on authenticity and all these things while still quote unquote, closing the deal or building the relationship? Is that even not even possible? Oh, sure it is. But it's not really sort of one item. You know, you mentioned earlier something about Uh, Is it just knowing all the right tips and tricks? I don't do tips and tricks. That's not my thing. I mean, every now and then I'll post a LinkedIn video or something with like, here's three tips for this, but that's like a daily nugget. Overall, tips and tricks allow you at best to fake your way through something. It's really about what practices do you learn to embody? What becomes part of your brand? And I think the notion of branding is something that a lot of people, both individual contributors and employees at companies or or nonprofit organizations, as well as entrepreneurs, often don't think about. Like you think about your company brand, whether you are the best vegan, you know, virtual bake shop, something or other in the tri-state area, or if you are, you're the best personal fitness coach in the world or whatever your skill is or your company, you know, okay, Coca-Cola does this, Q-tip is known for that, or, you know, Johnson & Johnson versus McDonald's versus, we think of those companies as having brands, but we don't think about ourselves as having individual brands. And the best place to start is asking yourself as a person, not just as an entrepreneur per se, but as an individual, as a leader, what do you want to be your brand? 
And you have to write it down because until you write it down, it's not real. And you are still thinking conceptually and nebulously. The biggest gap in the world is the three inches between your brain and your mouth. You know, we all have lots of knowledge and and general understandings of things, but to make that huge transition to being able to articulate in words and sentences exactly what it is that we want, that is much harder than most people realize. So when you think about your brand as a person, as a professional, what do you want to be known for? You know, what are the core values? What are you always going to get? A friend of mine, Alan Kersner, is a professor of marketing over at Drexel University. He's teach at NYU and at Wharton and a bunch of other places. And he defines brand as the promise of an experience and the experience of a promise delivered. Your brand is the promise of an experience, what you promise your audience, whoever it is, that in working with you, they will get this always and consistently. And the experience of a promise delivered. What does it feel like to them to have that actual experience, to live that promise, to feel it, not just hear it? So for me, it's all about respect and integrity and clarity of communication. My world is guaranteeing that you will experience the best communication from me and it will have integrity and I will be honest with you. Everybody in my organization, we work with each other through honesty and integrity, laying cards on the table, being diplomatic, being clear, finding the balance. It's all about the effectiveness of the communication. The mission for my company is about increasing the amount of joy in the world by helping more people feel heard and understood. Because I inherently believe that miscommunication is one of the greatest causes of struggle, of depression, of war, of so many other things, large and small, because everybody's looking at each other saying, you're not listening to me. And when two parties are all looking at each other saying, you don't get it, you're not understanding me, that's where the snowball kicks in. So everything that I do is trying to help others be understood as well as, of course, understanding me. You know, I will do that efficiently. I will do it compassionately. I will do it directly as is necessary by the situation. What is your brand? What's your reputation? What do you want it to be? How do you want people to talk about you when you're not in the room? Aside from, of course, the quality of the product that you give them, which should reflect that brand. When you decide what your personal brand is, then you can go and figure out how you're going to speak authentically, about how you're going to speak with confidence, about what you need to do with the nature of what your message is, the words you choose, the stories you tell, the marketing language that you publish, et cetera, as well as then how you speak when it comes out of your mouth, that vocal and visual delivery channels, and how do you make it land so that people believe that you believe what you're saying. But it all has to stem from knowing your why and knowing what your ultimate mission is, your big picture mission for life and for your business, as well as your small mission for that conversation in that moment. What outcome do you want? And what qualities do you want them to associate with you? You want them to hang up the phone and say, or click leave from the Zoom meeting and say, wow, she was really confident and approachable and friendly, no nonsense, but still really relatable and this and that. And I trust her for some reason in my gut. She seems to really know what she's talking about. you know. Or do you want them to say, boy, she was really pushy and she was cold or she was... You have to think about these things because then you have to think, well, what do those qualities sound like? What do they look like? Yeah. And I also now, whenever I have calls with people, which is now a lot because I do podcasting and I have partnerships and whatever... 
And there are so many people. I'm like, I love you. I feel like you're a sister, a brother to me. I feel like we're related. I could trust you. I like you. And then there's the other half of the people who are like, I want to be as far away from you as possible. I, like, I cannot even talk to you. This is salesy. This is gross. Like, we don't even have a relationship and you're already trying to get me to sell from you. And I mean, that's for everything, right? But it's just, it is so funny how even in the way that you speak, even in the way that your body language, it can completely emit whether it's for like, the good intention or like selling not not that selling is bad intention but right there's two different ways of going about things for sure well speaking about like missions and branding and like all these amazing things so can you kind of talk about what it was like to build your brand i know you have a course now virtual influence and in your book like these are monster things that you've done and have great success in can, can you kind of share a little bit about them what they are and then you know kind of what your experience was doing because i'm sure a it wasn't easy b it didn't come immediately c like it takes the village to kind of put something like that together and patience of course yes and a lot of trial and error which is where the patience comes in handy and a cast iron stomach on occasion so the book came first and in part it's because for me and my business i am the brand as a consultant, as a trainer, as a coach, as a speaker, it's my face, it's my voice, it's my teachings, which is different from if you are creating a line of lingerie or if you are doing that home delivery meal service, something or other, something that's more brick and mortar or more tangible product. So you have to decide that first, but I am the brand. As such, for me, I wanted to be on more stages. I wanted to be speaking at more engagements. And for a lot of the bigger venues, the main conferences, if you don't have a book, you're not viewed as a contender, frankly. Really? Because, oh, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. So that was tough. So I wanted to be on the stages with thousands of people, not just dozens of people. And places like the Pennsylvania Conference for Women or the California Professional Business Women Conference, a lot of them would say, you need the book first. Because if we're going to give you a giant audience, you know, they want to make a profit off of it too. So they want to know that you're going to kill it on the stage. And then everybody's going to flock to the vendor, to the book stand in the expo at the convention center, whatever it is, to buy your book because you've inspired them. So there's that revenue piece for them as well. Okay, I needed a book. Honestly, I, I would say it took me probably four years total to write the book. Six months once I finally realized that I was never going to do it by myself again, that whole it takes a village piece, like you just said. And I was dabbling on and off, get on the bandwagon for a couple of days or weeks, then fall off for a couple of months. And finally, at the end, I just hired a publisher and I was like, give me a deadline. And they said, all right, got three months to finish the manuscript to its completion. And then we'll do another three months for the push and the marketing and all that kind of stuff. And we'll get it out. So that gave me a window and I paid money for it. And that lit a fire under my butt to say, you have to make this priority and get it done. There's lots of other kinds of services. You can have ghostwriters, you can hire people who will write the book for you or with you or however you like. So again, it depends on what your topic is, who you are, why it matters for you. But that was why I decided to write a book, which has certainly been helpful because it is more like a a heftier business card, effectively. You know, I can send it to people. I'm I'm not going to put my kids through college based on what the proceeds from the book. Don't ever write a book with the expectation of making a lot of money off of it. A book is a calling card. A book is a piece of marketing collateral for 99% of the population. So have it, do it well, but set your expectations realistically on that. I am very glad I have it. And it has been a super marketing piece of collateral, but not a massive revenue generator. As far as the online course is concerned, in the last 18 months or so, of course, the world went from either all in person or just on the phone to all video all the time. And 
most people, you know, here in Zoom, you can rename yourself. You know how to do that, right? You can like on, you can rename, put anything you want, queen of the universe, et cetera. But I think most people would prefer when they have to click join meeting, turn on video, they would prefer to rename themselves with a disclaimer that says, I just want you to know if you met me in person, you'd be impressed. Put that out there. It's like, I know I'm kind of so, so here on camera, but just trust me, this hot mess that you're about to meet on camera, I'm really, I'm, I'm smarter than this. I'm better than this. I'm more professional than this. You can trust me, even though what you're about to experience virtually is not great. You know, a year and a half ago, a year ago even, that might have been sort of acceptable. But now this is here. Video's here to stay. And talk about your brand. This is the only way that 99% of the world is going to know you. It's true. It's completely true. Even if they live in the same town as you nowadays, you don't meet people in person anymore. Even when you can, you realize this is more efficient. So, you know, I, I interviewed somebody for my podcast just a couple of months ago, who is the senior vice president at a big insurance company. And he said, you know, the challenge for me is that I know if I can shake someone's hand, I can close them as a client. Well, guess what? Nowadays, no one wants to shake your hand first. They want you to meet here virtually first. And you know what? If in 20 minutes, I'm not interested and I got to go, I hang up. I never talk to you again. You have to earn the right to meet me a second time to let you shake my hand. That's a whole different ballgame. You have to be so much more compelling to convince somebody to put on actual pants that aren't gym shorts and shoes of some sort and drive away from their house. So like that 30-minute conversation is not going to take you an hour and a half by the time you drive there, drive back, maybe longer than that. Make it worth my while in the first 20 minutes you have as an audition right here. Ready? Go. Like That's a very different world. So Virtual influence is all about how to make sure that you are as good here in the virtual world as you would have been and as you know you can be when you get to meet someone in person. You should be as crystal clear, as confident, as charismatic, as magnetic, make people feel like you're right there in person. You need to be able to manage the meetings, to run the events, to maximize participation, engagement with people, not have people stepping over each other get people to actually turn their cameras on. What a neat thought. And then make sure that your message is crystal clear as well. And that your delivery is as effective as you would have been in person. So we make sure that Virtual Influence is an online course and you can check it out at virtualinfluence.today. It's not .net or .com, it's .today. See all the table of contents, the kinds of videos that are there. But you don't want to be penny wise and pound foolish, right? To say, well, I'll just figure this out on my own. Why? You're going to risk having all your business go down the tubes and not closing those deals because you're a hot mess or close enough. You know, it's good enough. Who's going to sign on with somebody who's like, oh, I'm good enough. That's not the brand I want. No, it's mm-mm. especially when you're spending or charging people a solid amount of money to be like a business coach or a social media manager or a consultant of any type. You need to like have it together tenfold of what they would expect of you. Yes, absolutely. That's the point of the online course. And I developed it, A, because I was doing trainings and I still am doing on a weekly basis, practically full trainings for companies, teams, et cetera, conference presentations, speaker lineups, et cetera, on how to be exceptional here in the virtual world. But so many other people were saying, but you know, my company's not going to bring you in. How do I do that? I need it. And I realized it was an opportunity for me as an entrepreneur to have another income stream via passive income, right? Passive revenue generation. So I created the course, uploaded all the videos, used Thinkific as my platform. And now it's something where people can just go log in and then watch whatever videos, do whatever worksheets they wanted, and know that with the next amount of time, they will have a complete transformation of their 
virtual presence and be a lot more confident and effective as a result of it. But that was a bear to create. That was just as big a bear, frankly. And in part because I'm an over planner, overachiever, over whatever. And instead of just doing like, you know, three short videos where I talk about X, talk about Y and talk about Z, you know, I broke it down into a bunch, like 40 mini five minute videos. It's all produced and all whatever else. So it's took a long time to get that up. And marketing, of course, is a lot harder than I had originally realized. It's just not like if you build it, they will come. You have oh, to do- no. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Sounds I like, like, you know. Yeah. Well, because like, well, one thing before I get, I want to compliment you and say that because you put so much TLC into your course, it clearly shows that you care, which a lot of people would say they just want to pump something out for the sake of pumping it out and charging money and collecting it. And that's like, if you're not providing value or impacting people, then there's, you don't have good intentions. So thank you for being one of the few on the internet who are like doing things right. But yeah, with my experience, like even like, okay, one of the reasons why things are going really well, in my business is yes, because of marketing. So I do a lot of it through social media, through like referral, word of mouth, things like that. What I'm finding is I've been going viral like crazy on TikTok, which is amazing, but right? It's one time. And then it dies down and you're like, oh my God, I have to do it again. So then I do it again. And then I'm like, oh my God, I have to do it again. So then I have to do like 20 different videos to find the thing that then works to go viral again to drive more traffic. So it's never one and done ever, ever, ever. There's always a new email campaign. There's always a new TikTok video, Instagram post, Facebook thing, this group, this meeting, this thing. Yeah. It was not what I was expecting. I mean, I love it, but it's definitely, it's not what the gurus say where it's like, yeah, send it and forget it. Like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right. No, there is no set it and forget it. It's what have you done for me lately? And who else just sent out a new video of a cute kitten playing with a bug that is now going to be the newest sensation that, all right, everybody forgot who you were. It doesn't take much on social media. The average attention span is about that long. So you cannot just set it and forget it. So I'm glad you mentioned that phrase. Yeah. And even evergreen stuff, which is still great. It still requires so much TLC and, you know, constant networking and it's, it's, it's never over. You need to be passionate about what you do in order to maintain it, you know? Right. And evergreen content is good because it can be repurposed and repackaged and remarketed and repromoted, not 99.999% of the time, because you could just leave it and set it and forget it. My Ted talk was a unicorn in that. It was a complete anomaly. It is by far the only thing that I have ever done that is just up there and it took on a life of its own and it's still getting thousands of hits a day. That is mind boggling. I don't know how it happened. And you know, it's funny, I watched the analytics when that video was first posted. And you know, I checked it after every month or two, would take a look. And at about the six month mark, I was already pretty impressed because it's not like I'd been promoting it much other than, you know, the initial announcement, like, Hey everybody, I gave a Ted talk. Here's the link, watch it, have fun. You know, I, it's on my website and I had put it on my LinkedIn profile and it's, there's a link to it in the footer, in the signature line of my email, but I don't consider that like hardcore promotion in the first six months it had gotten about 50,000 views, which I thought, okay, well, that's pretty solid, you know, for six months, not too bad. And I stopped looking. And then at the end of the year, when the anniversary hit, I thought, well, let me just check and see if it's still being watched at all, or if it sort of ebbed and that was it, it peaked and then it died. And there was this, what every entrepreneur wants to see somewhere in their business, this kind of hockey stick moment. And it went from 50,000, the first six months, the next six months, it hit a million. It wasn't like it was 500,000 to a million where it was the same amount of growth, it was geometric difference. And 
I feel like, did you, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's work, The Tipping Point? Yes. That book. That was it for me too. I, oh, it's such a remarkable experience when all of your effort and you don't even plan it. It just happens. That tipping point happens and, you know, the ice finally melts type of thing. And you're like, wow, like it's here. Exactly. There was some connector, someone who had 80 billion followers on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever medium of the day was popular. And they must've just said, Hey, saw this neat YouTube video, check it out. And they must've shared it for me. And I wish I knew who it was so I could send them a fruit basket or you know something else just to say, thank you for promoting, because that was that must've been the tipping point where suddenly everybody was looking at it. It was getting like 10,000 hits a day. But most of what we produce on social media will not. You know, I get dozens or maybe hundreds of hits on posts, not thousands, much less millions. I'm constantly amazed at people who just know how to do that. Gary Vee is one of the unicorns. Story Clark is a, a unicorn. You know, there are those who can do that and they have figured out the secret sauce, but they also already have a huge following. They have tens or hundreds of thousands of people on their mailing lists. So it's much, much easier for them. Of course, they know algorithms and they know buzzwords and they know you know hashtags and whatever else too, but they've built that followership, which already helps with the launch, which us mere mortals don't necessarily have at that point. And Gary Vee, yes, he can swear all over the place. Tony Robbins swears, you know, a lot of them are those swears, but again, they've built their brand around that. And there are those who won't like them for it, but they're not worried about those who don't want it. They have figured out a way to either make that part of the offer or somehow to work it in. That won't work for everybody. And those guys, Gary Vee is talking to entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are not investment bankers who work in very, can't even say nine to five because nobody works nine to five anymore, but, you know, suit and tie buttoned up, prim and proper, follow the rule book kind of companies. You know, they're not working for accountants. They don't have to follow anybody else's rules for what they're doing. So it's different. I mean, I even had a business coach who for a long time was terrific, but he would advise me sometimes in how to try to close certain deals or how to frame marketing language. And 90% of what he offered advice-wise was solid. And he'd offer me even templates or suggestions based on stuff he had used that was successful. And some of it was good, but that last 10% didn't match because I'm saying the difference between your audience and mine is that I am your audience, that entrepreneurs are your audience. My audience is not typically the entrepreneur. My audience is usually the corporate executive. And corporate executives are not the final decision makers. They have to you know, run through budgets and they have timelines and they have other things. An entrepreneur, they usually don't have to run ideas past anybody. If they've got the money, they've got the time, they can hand you a credit card at the end of the call. My people, even if they are the CXO and they're the boss, they still have to check with certain people. They cannot just whip out a credit card at the end of the call and give you that number. So understanding the power dynamics, understanding your audience is really important. And things that work for one audience don't necessarily work for others. It's authentic, but again, who's your audience and will that fly for them or not? If you don't like Gary Vee, you don't listen. You don't like that he swears. Okay. And he's not worried about it because he's got plenty of other followers for it. Yeah. I love the way that this whole podcast went so far. I love the direction. I love the little gold nuggets. You've taught me even more than I already learned from you <laughs> in our first call. So, and I know a lot of people who listen are going to get, you know, equally as much value from what I have from just our two interactions as well. So I want to kind of wrap up this podcast like I do with a lot of other people by asking you, if you could give advice to your younger self, what would that be? I think two things. One, just trust that it will eventually work because there is a very long, very slow ramp up. Uh, It was really probably five years 
into my entrepreneurial journey before I really figured out what my niche was going to be and made the pivot, rebranded, created Vocal Impact Productions and got known for what I'm known for. That was a long journey. And then even since then, you know, building the company has been faster since then, but a, a different kind of a road. So trust that things will eventually pan out is one. And then the, the second piece is also find your niche. You can't be all things to all people. I think a common problem or mistake or pitfall that entrepreneurs make, especially in the beginning, when the money's not rolling and people ask you, so what do you do? And you're thinking, what do you need me to do? Uh, your money's as green as anybody else's, right? I mean, I could do this and I could do this and I've done this for some people. And one person asked me to do that. I could do that for you if you wanted me to do that for you. And you know, you're trying to be all things to all people, hoping that somebody's going to pay you and you're willing to flex. And while that might be okay for certain short-term fixes, because you don't want to turn people away, it really muddies the water in that people don't understand who you are. They don't understand what you offer. I think it's more important to pick your niche and say, here's who I work with and here's the value that I bring them. And if somebody else who's not in that demographic says, wow, that's really awesome. I mean, would you do something like that for me too? Because I could use you to do this. Fine, say yes. I'm willing to make the flux. I'll create the program for you. I'll take your money if you want to give it to me and do something a little different. Sure, if there's room on your dance card for that. But you have to be clear of who you are and then ask them to make the exception rather than saying, well, I could be really anything you want me to be. Tell me what you need. You can't build a brand on that and you need to build your brand. So pick. It's hard to know who to say no to first. And when you make that decision who you're not going to market to, you will make a whole lot more progress much faster. I love all that. Thank you. So where can our listeners find you? Uh, Lots of places. My website itself for the company is vocalimpactproductions.com. The podcast is speaking to influence communication secrets of the C-suite. It's all about the role of communication as an essential leadership skill. Uh, Interview business leaders from executives at Comcast and Amazon to nonprofit leaders for organizations like Big Brothers, Big Sisters and Women Against Abuse. So you can find that on all of your major podcast platforms or otherwise just go to speakingtoinfluence.com and you'll see the podcast and links from there. And of course, as you referenced earlier, there's always the online course, which is virtualinfluence.today. And that's where the program is. If you'd like to check that out, and when in doubt, you can always look for me on LinkedIn. But if you look for me on LinkedIn, please reference that you heard me here on Gabby's podcast and want to connect for that reason. Because otherwise, I don't usually connect with people if I don't know why they want to connect with me or where they learned of me first. And you matter, your listeners matter. So I definitely want to connect with anybody out there who'd like to continue the conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. I am really thrilled with how this went. And I learned so much. Again, I want to reiterate, I learned so much from you and I'm really excited to keep you know our partnership and checking everything. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, Gabby, I got to ask you one question. You mentioned at the very beginning that after our first conversation, you made a couple of tweaks that have made a big difference for you. Can you share what one of them was? So I found right away, well, okay, first of all, when I first met you, you got on the call and I was like, holy shit, this person, she's so smart. She's so confident. Like I, you, cause usually when I run a podcast, especially when I do the podcast prep calls, I run the show. And I felt just from our initial looking at each other, like that initial Zoom startup, I was like, oh my God, she's running the show. Like it was this, this weird, no. And I, and I mean that in a complimentary way. And also like it caused me to 
reevaluate how I show up. Right, right now my screen is not clear. Like my lighting is terrible. Like I just need to be more confident in the way that AI show up, but also like in the energy that I emit, even if it's over the camera. And so that was a huge thing. But then also when I had first spoken to you, I was in the very early stages of my business and didn't know which direction it was going, who it was going to be. And yet I'm still figuring that too. But now I can emit a different energy going with confidence, knowing that I know it will work out. It's starting to take shape. And even though I don't know it, I'm still going to pretend like I know what I'm doing, even though I'm still figuring it out. Because at the end of the day, I do know what I'm doing. You know, like there is a confidence there. I wouldn't be where I am had I not done all the steps before. So I need to start like showing up in that way as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And see, little details can really make a huge difference to people. So I I know that your listeners are going to get uh, just as much incredible value out of your entire podcast, not just this interview. So keep tuning into Gabby and you can't go wrong. Thank you so much again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast. Make sure to check out corporatequitter.com for extended content and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things Corporate Quitter and to learn more about how you can leave the 9 to 5, follow our host Gabby on Instagram or TikTok at SheLikesToGab. 